with the recent release of GPT-4, now seems like a really good time to release a few episodes on intelligence. Not just artificial intelligence, but intelligence in general. And to help us go on this journey, we're joined again by David Cracker, President and William H. Miller Professor of Complex Systems at the Santa Fe Institute. Now, both of these episodes were recorded prior to the release of GPT-4. And in part two, David's going to talk about artificial intelligence. But in this episode, part one, we're going back to something basic. David's going to ask, just what is it that makes us intelligent? This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. David, welcome back to the show. We're going to talk about intelligence today in part one of a two-part series on intelligence. This is all about the evolution of intelligence. Our next episode will be all about the automation of intelligence. But staying with the evolution of intelligence, where does intelligence fit in with complexity? The obvious point to start with is there's no intelligence without complexity, right? So in our last conversation, we defined it. And we said it was networks of adaptive agents. And if you think about the brain, what is that? Well, it's a bunch of neurons, adaptive agents, connected together to form a brain. Out of those collective comes behavior that we describe as intelligent. It immediately touches a very interesting set of issues, which are, shall we define intelligence in terms of its structure, the elements, how they work together, their properties, their collective dynamics, or is it purely based on their outputs, on their behaviors? And this has been an ongoing debate from the very beginning. So that's one thing, one relation to complexity. Another is a lot of the contemporary approaches to studying the brain use techniques from complexity science. Information theory is one obvious one. There's something called the critical brain, which looks at phase transitions in the way that nervous system works. Network neuroscience that use techniques of network theory in studying brains. So there's a whole methodological dimension that brings modern methods that were developed outside of neuroscience into the study of the brain. I know you're really interested in how intelligence has been studied. How has it been studied over the, the history? Well, it's a really embarrassing history. I mean, I always say we've been most stupid about intelligence, right? It's the topic, <laughs> it's sort of an irony, right? It's the topic about which we've been most unintelligent. And it's not surprising because we tend to look at it through a very anthropomorphic, a very human lens. My interest here is looking at its history from the beginning of the origin of life itself. Single cells, multi-cells, differentiated tissues with nervous systems and so on. And very early on, there was this connection that was made between intelligence and life. One of the early really interesting researchers on intelligence was Charles Darwin's assistant later in life. This is George Romanus. And he wrote a big monograph on intelligence. And in it, he defines intelligence as systems capable of adaptive flexibility that possess a quality of intention, purposefulness. 
And if you think about that, you think, well, wait a minute. Bacteria have that property, right? We have that property. Computers have that property. It seems so general that it looked like a definition of life itself. And actually, to this day, thoughtful definitions of intelligence look like definitions of life. So that's an interesting problem in itself. It was believed for a long time that a distinction should be drawn between humans and the rest of animate matter. And that was based on the belief that human intelligence is flexible, learnt, recursive, self-aware, whereas the rest of the living world was just a kind of a set of reflex engines, innate programs that were inflexible. And we now know that's completely false. <laughs> okay. But that debate continues. Give us an example of how one of those was shown to be completely false. I mean, presumably you're talking about instinct there, like animal instinct. That's just what that animal does. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that Descartes, for example, thought of the rest of the living world was as machines that had fixed input-output functions, right? Every time they did something, they did it the same way. But interestingly, when we started looking at invertebrates, very famous work, by the way, by Eric Kandel, who won a Nobel Prize for this work. And he was working on something called the siphon withdrawal reflex of Aplysia californicus. So this is a, it's got a little tube that it uses to suck in water and essentially a little sea slug. And what he did is he continually prodded it and he found that it changed its behavior based on its experience of him bugging it essentially. So this little, very simple organism was learning to change its simple reflex based on experience. So this idea that it was only higher mammals that had this property was very quickly refuted. And so the notion of what a reflex is or an instinct is, is actually somewhat difficult. It's certainly not something fixed. When we get to these higher mammals like ourselves, us humans, I've heard you speak before about the things that we define as humans as intelligent. One example you talk about a lot is, is chess. We see chess as sort of the pinnacle of intelligence. But can you talk about chess and the Rubik's Cube and something like basketball. Yeah, so it's interesting, right, that when researchers, and we'll get to this in our next episode, became interested in creating artificial varieties of intelligence, computational intelligence, they became very interested in higher cognitive functions like mathematics or chess playing, right? And it turns out to be quite easy. We already have programs that are better than us at chess, but we don't have any programs the better than us at basketball, <laughs> okay? Interestingly, other animals are better than us at moving in many different domains, like flying through the air or swimming through the ocean. So it's interesting that the things have proven to be difficult from the point of view of engineering and design are the things that we find easy, and the things that have proven to be easy are the things that we find difficult. And there's a deep clue in there about the nature of evolution. And the way I like to put this is evolution doesn't give a shit about chess or mathematics. <laughs> it cares deeply about motion. And so the amount of, if you like, cognitive neural resources that we get to allocate to doing the things that we consider most praiseworthy and impressive are actually rather minimal. So it raises this whole question of, wait a second, are we looking at intelligence using the completely wrong lens here? Should we be considering the amount of computational power it takes? Or is it something else about uniqueness and, and human abilities and human declarative knowledge? I loved it, a presentation you talked about, you know, when, when it comes to chess, 
we clearly see that as intelligent. But when we see a star basketball player, we don't use the word intelligent. We use the word talent. Exactly. Yeah, we have a whole bigoted language around disparaging traits that we don't perform any better than other animals. Right. So walking and running, you know, no, 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 that's not, that doesn't require intelligence. I mean, because other animals do it better than us. They're faster than us. So there's that whole thing. There's this very nice phrase that Daniel Dennett came up with in 2012 uh, called competence without comprehension. And on the one hand, that seems a little bit like a reflex, something innate, right? But the key point is that true talent in any domain evolves towards or develops towards competence without comprehension. For example, if you're really good at mathematics, you don't have to think when you're about to integrate a function. It's almost a reflex. It's an expertise that you've acquired. It's become effortless. Whereas beginners in mathematics really have to labor and sweat over a problem. So it looks more like running. There's this very interesting fact that the better you are, the more effortless things become and the more they look like characteristics that we typically do not associate with intelligence. So there's this weird tension between the easy and the difficult that seems to be part of the key to understanding this problem. One of the lines I've heard you use is that the really intelligent people are the people that make something seem really simple. That's a real mark of being able to simplify something down to its core idea. And then the geniuses, they just change it. They have a new, even simpler set of rules. Yeah, I always say it's funny. All these things are actually the opposite of what we have been taught. But we know the following. We all go to school, this is the example I typically give, and you sit next to someone who's solving, let's say, a math problem, and they're making it look easy and effortless. And you turn to them and say, wow, you make that look so easy. You know, you must be really smart. On the other side is someone who's making a very easy math problem look really difficult. And, and it would be appropriate to say, you're probably not very smart. You know? And in fact, this is a clue because the definition of intelligence that I provide is rule systems that make hard problems easy problems. And any of us who have learned sport, for example, you're learning a new stroke in tennis and you have a good coach, the coach will say, wait a second, don't hold the tennis racket between your toes. That's not going to work very well. Hold it this way and swing this way. And you say, wow, that's so much easier, right? It's exactly the same in mathematics. And so much of my work is trying to understand the different dimensions that turn a hard problem into an easy problem or the opposite, which I call stupidity, which is rule systems that make easy problems hard that, of course, we're all very familiar with, unfortunately, in our everyday lives. Before we get into how you make hard problems easy, which we're definitely going to come to, um, measurement of intelligence. I know you're a, a real fan of the IQ test. Tell us what you think of the IQ test. Yes, yes, the idiot quotient. Yeah, this is a very regrettable, alluring metric. It has the qualities of all metrics, right? It gives you the illusion of understanding or value, but of course it gives you very little. I've talked to other people about this and price has this allure, right? You say this is a very valuable object dictated by market forces, but it tells you almost nothing about the object. Well, it tells you really nothing about the object other than its demand. And IQ is a bit that way. So IQ has a history, it goes back to the beginning of the 20th century, to people like Spearman, where he discovered something that is interesting, that if you give people a set of tests 
or examinations, many of the results tend to be correlated. And he called that correlation general intelligence. It became known as the G factor, which in mathematical terms, for those who like this stuff, is like a a factor or a principal component in a statistical analysis. And it is a measure of correlation. And now we know that what Spearman was basically measuring was working memory, that there are tasks where if you have a good working memory, which by the way, can be cultivated, a lot of your performances become correlated. So that's the history. It then gets adopted for rather nefarious means as a means of excluding immigrants from moving from one society to another, it gets recruited into pseudoscientific eugenicist-like movements. So it has this rather, not rather, but highly tarnished history. My problem with it, apart from that, even though there's an interesting working memory correlation, is that it's entirely anthropomorphic. You couldn't ask an octopus to take an IQ test. Two, it's highly culturally contingent. If you actually go back and look at some of those beautiful Binet IQ tests from 1905, it's like, who was the third president of the United States of America? You think, wait a minute, what kind of an IQ test is that? So there's always this confound of factual knowledge that we would like to imagine has very little to do with your general intelligence. It's just a function of your biography, right? The schools you went to. It's very non-evolutionary. It's hard to understand what the selection pressure on IQ would be. So it has all these deficits. My approach is completely different. Jettison the metric. And let's think about higher dimensional, more nuanced approach. And I'm going to tell you what I particularly care about. So I think of intelligence as being this three-dimensional quality. On the one hand, there is this quality of strategy, which is most intelligent tasks involve pursuing an objective, winning a chess game, eating a bird, you know, escaping from the lion. There's a strategic dimension. The other dimension to it which interests me perhaps the most, is encoding or representation, which is encoding some property of the natural world that you can operate on, a bit like numbers, for example, would be a representation that you can add up, that give you some strategic advantage in the world. And inference, which is the third, and inference is deduction, induction, abduction, the stuff that actually computers do well, the straight calculation on the stored memory, which would be the representation. So you have encodings of the world, representations, you operate on them using inference to achieve an objective, the strategy. And when you think in those terms, you can really drill down. How does an octopus encode the world? How does a bird, how does a human, how does a machine perform inference? What is the strategic power of a virus or a microbe? which has very limited inference. So you can position different forms of life in a three-dimensional space where they each vary in their respective inferential, representational, strategic powers. Let's pull apart some of these, David. I'm fascinated by these. And start with strategy, because I've heard you say before that it's the simplest to get to. But I've heard you explain strategy where, yes, I want to eat the bird if I'm an animal. But that requires you to essentially know you want to do that, then you got to work out how you're going to do that, which is essentially building a model, isn't it, of how you think, what you think is going to happen when you make a certain number of movements to get as far as that bird. Can you broaden out that a little bit and give us a good example of it as well? Well, interestingly, that's true and not true. 
So let's take a virus. A virus is very good at infecting our cells. It's very good at transmitting from one host organism to another, but it's not thinking at all in the terms that you just described, Sean. It has hundreds of millions of years of evolution that have given it a genome that encodes the necessary contingencies supporting those strategies that I just described, right? So from the representational point of view, very simple, it's got a few little genes. It's inferentially pathetic. I mean, that thing can't sum one and one, but strategically it's a kind of genius, right? So that's why it's important to think about these different dimensions. On the other hand, take us. We're strategically obviously a bit inept. We mess everything up. You know, we don't know who's going to win an election. We don't even know how to vote. We don't trust the machines that we've delegated. There's a whole mess of modern society which shows human incompetence to an extraordinary degree when it comes to strategy. On the other hand, look what we can do. We can write down complex numbers. We have a theory of differential geometry. We have Picasso's beautiful synthetic cubist paintings. We're very good actually at representation, and we're pretty good at inference. I mean, we can perform incredible sums in our heads or using paper and pencils. So humans are the species that are representationally and inferentially powerful, but I think strategically a little bit lacking because we can be undone by a microbe, which clearly doesn't have what most people would think of as high intelligence. And that's a mistake. It has a dimension of high intelligence. And if we go to, to inference, because I want to leave representation for the end, so inference, induction, deduction, just very quickly tell us about those. And then let's go to abduction because I find that one difficult. Induction is generalizing from empirical examples. You know, I see a raven, it has black feathers, and I conclude that all ravens have black feathers. That's an induction. It's a generalization from a limited sample. A deduction is the correct following of rules so in mathematical proof, for example, or writing computer code, if X is bigger than 10, then go to line 30. That would be like a deduction. You're just following rules reliably. Abduction is very interesting. Abduction is neither generalizing from an instant nor following a rule, but actually guessing at a new regularity, guessing a solution to a problem. Let me give you an example. In the early work on trying to work out the orbits of the planets, we had inherited from Ptolemy the idea that orbits were circular. And we all know that you can fit the observed motions of the planets in our solar system to circular orbits if you have enough of them. Those were you know, epicycles and deference. Kepler comes along and says, you know, <laughs> I have a much simpler way of doing all that that avoids all the carnage of thousands of circular orbits that are unseen, and it's just using an ellipse. There's a mathematical way of saying this, that the circular orbits that would be required to exactly fit the observed orbits would be an infinite Fourier series. There's a word for it. Whereas an ellipse is a different basis function. It's a much more efficient encoding representation of reality that massively simplifies. And it actually makes inference easier and it makes strategy more effective because now we can put, for example, huge telescopes in space because we know what the right basis functions are if you're pursuing a trajectory in a gravitational field. 
So that shift, by the way, from the circular to the ellipse, what, where did that come from? It didn't come out of the inference. He could have gone calculating those orbits forever. It was an abduction. Kepler said, you know, what if I try something completely different? And that jump is a mystery to us. We don't really know how that works. And that's why it's not discussed as much, right? Because there's no really good theories for abduction in the way that there is, for example, for induction and deduction. Finally, let's talk about representation, because this is one of my favorite. And this is ultimately one of the key things that sort of separates us a little bit from animals, isn't it, in terms of how we use representation? Representation goes all the way down into the brain and all the way out into culture. So there are ways, for example, that your visual system represents scenes in the visual world. It divides them into edges and edges that move and then into higher order features as you move back through the visual pathway into the visual cortex. So that's one kind of representation, right? There's another kind of representation, which is the representation of ideas in cultural objects, like on paper, which is I can represent number. I can represent a number of objects with a little glyph seven, and you immediately know what I'm talking about. And there are good representations and bad ones. For example, most of us were unfortunate enough to learn Roman numerals when we were at school, right? Not quite sure. It was to read gravestones. That was, I guess, the purpose. <laughs> and, but try and do mathematics, even basic arithmetic with Roman numerals. It's a total waste of time. They don't have place-based numbers. They don't have a zero. It's ridiculous. So most people who operate with Roman numerals translate into the Indian Arabic system that we all use, and they go back again. So that's a good example. Um, number systems and their evolution are a fossil record of human ingenuity when it comes to representation, which makes solving hard problems easy. Turns out, for example, for computers, the easy number system is binary because it maps naturally onto transistor states on and off. So those are very simple examples of representation. Of course, it gets more and more elaborate. Geometry, for example, the representation of non-Euclidean space, for example, on the surface of a sphere. These are all ways that help us think about problems that make very difficult problems relatively easy for us. And presumably you put things like differentiation, integration in there as well, that until you had that way of representing rates of change in, in the case of differentiation, you couldn't even really begin to think about them properly until you had that ability. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. I mean, the very funny, the, the classic case of this is the neurotic Isaac Newton, who replaced conic sections with the calculus, right? Because you can take a slice through a cone and you can either get a circle if it's flat, that's a circular orbit, or you can take slices across cones or stacked cones and get hyperbolic orbits, parabolic orbits. And when Newton wrote the Principia, the way he actually did it is he wrote, he discovered independently from Leibniz, as far as we know, the calculus or invented it and solved the problems using the calculus, much more elegant. But when he wrote the Principia, he actually presented it using conic sections because <laughs> he didn't want anyone to know that he had discovered an easy way of doing it. So he wanted to look much smarter because it's very hard to solve those problems. Using it's like saying, you know, I'm going to put an astronaut on the moon and I'm going to do it all with an abacus. Right? as opposed to a computer. So you're absolutely right. But that shift from the conic section to the method of fluxions, as Newton called the differential calculus, was a beautiful instance of making hard problems easier. And in fact, the whole progress 
of the human species in terms of this vector of intelligence is those kinds of discoveries. And somehow our education system has got it all arse backwards because it, it sort of wants us to believe that it's about not only grappling with difficulty, but actually being a master of it, manifesting it. If you go to a lecture and you can't understand what someone's talking about, you say, oh, that must be very clever, right? When I go to a lecture, I don't understand what they're talking about. I think, well, that must be unbelievably stupid, right? Because presumably there would have been a way to be clear about that topic. And it takes time, as you know, in this, the worlds that we live in and work in, you have to think a lot to make things simple. I mean, that's the magic. Completely agree with that. And it's an underrated, an underrated skill, which nicely brings us just for a couple of moments before we finish to the concept of, which I presume representation really makes possible, this concept of intelligence in culture and how we use culture. Yeah. So that's been an obsession of mine. And I call this exbodiment, which is, I'll give a good example, a simple one, the map. We together collectively can draw a map of a territory. And that map is generated over a course of centuries, perhaps, as most maps of the world were. But you then as a single individual can look at that map and internalize it. And I can take that map and burn it. And you'll still possess either the whole map or some part of it. Okay. So your navigational strategic capability has been significantly amplified through the existence of an artifact that's been collectively constructed. And that back and forth between individual minds and brains, individual contributions to collective artifacts is the process that I call exbodiment. And in fact, you can look at the history of chess through this lens, which I have, how the chessboard has changed. It used to be a game that was played with a die, and now it's a deterministic game. There are rules that have been introduced to make it richer, rather like mathematics. You know, like the, as you mentioned earlier, the invention of the calculus is like adding another rule to the game. Interestingly, when we go to machine intelligence that I know that we're going to discuss, that whole aspect is neglected. It's fascinating. Early on in the history of intelligence, there was a big fight. And the fight was between B.F. Skinner and Noam Chomsky. And Skinner was a strident, strict behaviorist. He only believed in schedules of reinforcement. That if you performed a behavior that was good, it would be reinforced. If it was a behavior that was bad, it would be punished. And that's all you needed. And Chomsky said, uh, hold on a minute. <laughs> if you look at the way that kids learn languages, they're almost never rewarded or punished. There's a paucity of the stimulus and they learn languages much too quickly for your theory to be right. And this was this resurgence of this representational view of language that there is an innate structure that supports it. It's not just reinforcement learning. And language is one of the best examples of an embodiment, of an embodied trait, because you, neither you nor me nor anyone else we know invented the language we're speaking. It's sort of like the ultimate chessboard, right? It was co-constructed over tens of thousands of years by many people to give us a superpower narrative, what we're doing now, communication. And so if you look at AI, it's all about reinforcement. It's not about the construction of representations. It's not about language, a language of communication. And that, to me, is one of the great missing links 
in the whole enterprise of AI and machine learning, that it doesn't sufficiently treat of collective cultural artifacts, which are obviously the key to our intelligence. Everything that we do that we value is mediated either through language, mathematics, music, or shared artifacts. And so it's a fascinating deficit. And that's something that we'll come to discuss. So in this episode, David, we've talked about what makes us intelligent. We talked about representation, cognitive inference, and strategy. Where are we going to in the next episode? Give us a quick teaser for part two of our journey on intelligence. One interesting place to start is with the work of Alan Turing. And Alan Turing was obsessed with intelligence, of course. One of the early pioneers in building computers during World War II. And he invented the Turing test or the imitation game, which was, could I build a computer that would convince you that it was intelligent? And that way of thinking about intelligence in terms of deceiving people is the origin and ongoing history of AI. David Cracker, thank you very much and see you in part two. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.